Hi everybody, JP here with Dr. Ann Stroink, the current president of the AANS, excited to share some details about the upcoming meeting in Los Angeles this April. Dr. Stroink, I hear that this year the meeting has childcare opportunities for those attendees who will be bringing their families. Yeah, I think we're really excited about it because the AANS is really the first of organized neurosurgery to have on-site child services. And it's gonna to be to available to children of all ages from three months to 12 years. Um, of age and and it's new and it's fun to have have you know be an organization to do it for the first time. So the first two hours of the child care are complimentary on behalf of the double nest, and then the cost after that program is about twelve dollars per hour, and that's a good deal in LA in case people are wondering. But those <laughs> services be will be available primarily between seven a.m. and se and seven p.m. There's some slight variance on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Um, they kept it open uh, Friday, though, a little bit longer. So I'm hoping that people will come and use it. And it's uh, if you visit aans.org slash meetings, that's the way to set yourself up for it and bring your kids and enjoy uh, L.A. with your family. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Nursery Podcast. Once again, JP and I are here in person in Miami. That's right. And we have been waiting, JP. We've been waiting because we have interviewed Dr. Daniel Shuba, MD, MBA, many times because his personality is magnetic and larger than life. But now we finally have him in person. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I mean, we were just talking about that before we started today, saying despite this uh, wonderful uh, uh, channel that you guys do, this wonderful medium that you use, this is the first time we're hanging out face to face, which is, you know, we're coming full circle here. So thanks for having me again. Yeah, so let me just offer a, a tidbit. I think it was Joanna Gernsbach and Angela Richardson when you came out as visiting professor in Miami. They turned to me in the middle of dinner and they said, Dr. Wang, if you were more like Dr. Shuba, every resident in this program would go in the spine. <laughs> and I, I didn't really know how to take it, so I took another drink of alcohol to absorb it. And I, I realized that, wow, we, we ha I have so much to learn from you. And, and here I am falling behind you in the MBA track. And I thought we would talk a little more about that because I was woefully unprepared in that interview <laughs> for, for even having the right questions. But now things have changed yet more, and you're, you are running a multi billion dollar organization essentially right in essentially part, in part in yeah. part i mean uh, yeah you're with your partner teammate yeah with your yeah and and you're responsible for i mean are we allowed to talk about numbers you're responsible for throughput in the i'm guessing in the hundreds of millions of hundreds of millions yeah. hundreds of millions yeah and uh and and by the way this is not a commentary about money we are not by uh we are not avaricious but uh as they say no margin no mission right you can't right. have a hospital that doesn't have money to provide services, if you will, right? And that's what you're doing, is providing services at a population level now. Yeah, I think it's really, you know, and, and congratulations, Mike, first on taking another opportunity to always learn, right? You're, from you, of course, I'm always uh, learning from you. No, but I mean, taking, the, taking a didactic training, because we're learning every day, but, you know, doing a, a different curriculum, like you did the business school, and people always say, does it help you? And the answer, of course, is yes, because you're learning new stuff, but it's because I wanted to learn new stuff. So it's only what you make of it. So when people say, should I do an MBA? I said, if you want to, if you think that that's something that you'd enjoy, because we're gonna, it's self-fulfilling. And I know you would have enjoyed this and now you're seeing it. And, and what I just wanted to build on that last comment you said about no margin, no mission, 
I think sometimes we artificially, at least as doctors, at least me, we separate medicine and business, and they are truly integrated. And and I think something that's helped me, and it, which works with my personality, because most people know me as you know a little direct or very blunt at times, is transparency in business matters. So some people will say, why don't we have this device in the operating room? Why don't we have this building? Why don't we have this? And I'll say, let me show you how much money's in the system as of last year, how much we spent on the other things that you may have already used, and is all we have left. So now we have to decide. And they quickly go from saying, what about this to, oh, that's a great point. I'm either help get more money or I'll, I'll triage what I want, as opposed to having this, we used to just ask people above us for money and for resources. If you have a business sense, you understand it's a partnership. And you have to kind of look at this and say, how do we, how do we um, be good stewards of the money that we collect or create or value that we create while still being great doctors? And so I think having this, you know, that's why I want to ask you as well, getting a little bit of a view of the big picture of the business of healthcare is not, um, like you said, an avaricious thing. It's really, how do we keep the lights on so we can do what we love? Yeah, I think, I think one of the most important things that strikes me about doing this process, and you don't need an MBA for this, I would say in a country like America, and it would differ if you're in China or France or you know, Australia, but the concept that money's fungible, money is a measure of value, is important because most humans, most Americans, I'm gonna guess 85% of Americans out there, and this is not a dig on anybody, by the way, I used to be like this too, only think of money as a personal matter. In other words, they personalize money. When they think about money, it's like either you have it, you don't have it, it means having a Ferrari, it means throwing money around at strip clubs, it means buying the best wine, it means taking money from other people or not having it. And so it's a personalized feature of this abstract or material thing that is emotional. When you look at it from the perspective of the other 10% or 15% of people, they see it as simply a fungible measure of value. And it can't buy everything, by the way, but it's, a, it's the closest thing we have to saying, what is the value of this thing that can be quantified? Not like, you know, you love your mom, right? You want to buy a car, there's cars that are more expensive and less expensive. There's houses that are bigger or smaller, and it, we're not putting a value on which is better. But as you said, if you don't have the value proposition for that transactional piece, like you want to buy a robot, or you, know, you want to have more time off for your employees, for that matter, right? That measure, for most people, is purely emotional. We see the riots in France right now. It's mm -hmm. about the personalization of, I want to retire now, you promised me this, versus can it be paid for that if not enough people are working, the country will suffer. And that's what I saw as being different. And I felt like, I'm sorry, it's not like you interviewing me, but <laughs> I, I was shocked that in this day and age, that in my, I don't know how it was at Wharton, the way that business people talk about things is very transparent. Very transparent. And people don't like that sometimes because when they say, okay, here's a good example. We're going to give you an assignment. We're going to look at a demographic profile of this thing. Here's the races, black, white, Hispanic, other. I mean other, right? So they don't make this thing like, well, let's divide it in 50,000 categories because we don't have that data. It's not like we're making a judgment about the race of a person. They're just saying, this is the data we have. This is collected by the federal government or a sample by the census. It is what it is. You don't, you don't have the ability to say, well, I don't really like it. You just say, well, we're going to work with this data. 
right? And it's not about race. It could be about anything. It could be about, um, uh, in healthcare economics, about like how drugs are made and how much it costs to do it and whether a drug can, whether a pharmaceutical company can reinvest that money or not. And, it, and it's not about trying to make money. Like doing the MBA is not like trying to, for me to make more money. Certainly make less, less if anything, usually, right? Because you can't make any more money than Correct. by doing surgery. Correct. And so it just struck me as so odd. My eyes open, and, and now when I talk to administrators, I'm like, I understand what you're saying now. You're not saying, Mike Wang, you're not valuable, so we're not getting you a robot. You're saying, show us how this makes sense so in 10 years we can buy more robots. Totally. And you know, and I, I hate to bring this word up because it's like so anti, I don't know, it's, it's a boring word and it's something that I probably try to avoid for my whole career, but the word budget, which is mm. like a four-letter word, right? It's like <laughs> budget. Screw budget. You know, we're doctors. We're, we're, we're saving people's lives and helping them. But I think that word where you sit in there going, hey, we need to have an idea of what we're doing tomorrow so we can get ready for today. And I always hate that. As a doctor, I'm like the stupid budget. But if, you, if you're honest about budgeting and you say, um, so we got to pay certain people. It's going to cost us much. There's a standard of living increase. There's inflation. There's uh, the heating. There's the new paint job on the building. We need to bring in this much money. And anything after that is, if you understand that, people go, oh, so you're right. I thought I did a procedure that made me 100 bucks and I want 100 bucks. You'll, no, you need like electricity on to do the surgery at your place. And, <laughs> yeah. and if you can do it more efficiently, you can capture that. If you can do twice in the same day, your bosses, your partners will do that. And I, and I think this is true of us in general about budgeting, just to kind of even make it bigger, budgeting your life. And I don't mean to be, I am not a rigid person. I'm actually like to be spontaneous, but budgeting your life. So I think back to your comment, when people ask me, say, Dan, I'm, I'm thinking of being promoted or I'm looking for another job, this and that. The business people are usually pretty outspoken about this. They're like, then I'll be assistant vice president, then I'll be vice president, then I'll be senior vice president, then I'll be executive vice president, then I'll be CEO. And I'm going, well, what do you expect? They go, each one's gonna be three years. My salary will go up every three years. By this year, I'll make this much money. In medicine, we have this thing like, Hopefully my boss knows I'm good <laughs> and they'll know what I want Yeah, and I'm never going to tell it because that'd be yeah. like too pushy. So I'm going to hope that they know I'm doing yeah. stuff that's really good and then someday they'll notice it and you're like, let's budget your life. And, and, and if they don't do it, then fuck him. I hate him or her. He didn't. He totally right? screwed You see me. this every day. Every day. I hated my boss. And I think it's, yeah, it's where it's not we transparent. It's not transparent. And as a result, we end up being, I think, misunderstood and also uh, indignant about the situation when... And I always say to, to my fellows and residents, I say, talk with people about your career who want to help you with their career. Because if you sit there and say, you talk to someone like Mike Wang, Mike Wang's going to say, how can I help you? And you're going to, well, it's funny you ask because no one else has asked me. Or I didn't tell my chair. And you're going, you, you might want to tell your chair <laughs> that you want to change your practice. And, and you know, it, not, to, not to be uh, too somber, but there's a book that uh, Lou Toomey Allen uh, uh, told me about. It's called 4,000 Weeks. It's, it's a, a pretty decent book, but the point of it is 4,000 weeks is how much the average person in America lives. So sorry for all the listeners out there, that's like an 80-year-old's life. So 4,000 4, weeks doesn't sound like much. It's just a way of, and at least for me at my age, I you know, maybe got a, like 1,500, 1,200 weeks left. It does start to think, hey, if I want to accomplish some things, I might, have to, I might actually have to put something in my budget of my family, of my time, of my mental health, of my physical health. And I'm seeing the people who do it the best in our field are the people who can, I don't know if the word is balanced, they can manage the, their work life, they can manage their fun, they can manage their headaches. And so as you know, we all try to get better from each other, I hate using the word, 
But that budget thing is something to behold. And if you embrace it, as opposed to say budgets are stupid, just get involved in the process. Yeah. So this is beautiful. Like as we talked about doing this series of conversations with you, Dr. Shuba, because we talked with you when you were just moving to start your new job. We talked with you about the MBA as Dr. Wang was embarking upon that. And now as he's finishing up the degree, you know, we, we opened this talking about learning. And I feel like it's kind of a, a trite metaphor, but people talk about the expanding horizon of knowledge where the more you know, you know, if you visualize it as a circle, the circumference of that circle is greater. And so your, your borders expand and you're, you, more, you know more what you do not know. And you're exposed to more things to pique that interest and, and push you to learn further. So I wonder, as you have continued to progress in this new job, and, and perhaps we can tie this to finishing up the MBA, as you learned all these things throughout the year, Dr. Wang, you have learned more of what you did not know. And you've learned to think in this new way, which expands the problems that you see before you. So as, as you have settled in and now expanded yourself in Northwell, what kind of things do you face each day that when you were getting the MBA, when you were first starting there, you never even thought might be part of your life? Yeah, you know, I, I, one thing that was interesting to me is that, you know, so one thing, just to kind of back you up on this, there's some statements out there that they say, very rarely do we have something truly new. Mm. And that's, I don't know if that's true or not, but you know, the, like the transistor or, you know, like, you know, the internet. But most things that are evolution, or most things that are innovations are connecting different things. So Mike, finishing up his MBA, is seeing patterns, super smart guy, sees patterns normally faster than people. Now he's actually saying, this is something that I learned from a colleague that has nothing to do with this problem, and he started to unite them. Right. And there's an innovative solution where you're going, where'd you learn that? And I always, you know, I'm a big Star Wars fan, and I, I love that line when the guy tries to save Padme, Anakin Skywalker, and he says, you know, can we learn this way to save her life? And the, the future emperor says, not from a Jedi. And so I always joke that I learned my neurosurgery from Jedis. Yeah. And I learned my business. I'm not saying they're Sith Lords, but I'm learning other skills. I hope that was not too pejorative. But people say, How'd you, when did you learn this in, in residency? And I said, I didn't learn this from a Jedi. I, this, I went to a different school for this. But the patterns overlap. Um, in terms of, um, as you said, opening this up to learning, I think it's a... This very uh, uh, channel that you guys, this very medium that you guys do is a new form of learning. And so mm. when people listen and they love this podcast, um, hopefully they start seeing patterns too. Or we tell them to read a book or we tell them to do okay, something. Okay, okay. I have to ask now. Favorite Jedi <laughs> or Sith? Yeah. And which one are you? Yeah, so my favorite is the one that I would want to be me, and that's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi because uh, he killed the most Siths. Because he's just a player. I mean, he's yeah, just a stud. He's just cool. I like his tone. Okay. He's chill. He's good. JP? Mace Windu. Mace Windu. I Hands down. love it. Hands down. I am a... Uh, if we open it a purple lightsaber? Or? I do love the purple. That Sam Jackson insisted on that. So Does you could see him in his wallet in the, in the that says bad, bad MFR on his wallet? Badass Jedi. That's it. No, yeah. wrong movie. But um, <laughs> I, I think if we open it further to all movies, if I were to identify with any character in the history of cinema, it's Walter from The Big Lebowski. And he's a man who, who dies on the hill, right? He, there, it's about a line in the sand, dude, right? And Mace Windu, at, right up to, until the end, he would not compromise. He knew what was right. He stood up for it. And did he go down? He took it. He yes, took it. but he like took it like a man. So uh, my favorite, as, oh, as far as who, I am, who people would say I am, yeah. is actually Darth Maul with the double-headed lightsaber with the right. red face and it's all that. It's efficient. He's too right? He's very efficient. But the one, of course, <laughs> I admire the most 
is Kaigon Jin. Because okay. Kaigon Jin was Obi-Wan's master, and Kaigon Jin tried early to identify Anakin Skywalker, but understood the risk and uh, went up against Yoda on that. And Kaigon Jin is the one who allowed Obi-Wan to actually survive. And then Luke Skywalker in the final solution of transcending time, right? He, he, right. he found a way to live on as a ghost or whatever that is. Right. So I love Kaigon Jin, and, and of course, uh, Liam Neeson plays him. Oh, so yeah. that's pretty, that, pretty awesome. I'm going to peel this back further because <laughs> you may have revealed a conflict within yourself because Darth Maul kills Qui-Gon Jin. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and in fact, anyone who He is, beheads him. Anyone who oh, he like cuts him in half. Yeah, through. But anyone who's worked with you knows that you do have these two sides where you can be Darth Maul and you could be the intense, angry, aggressive force, but then you can also be the guide and the mentor and the father figure like Qui-Gon Jinn. So wow. I can th- tell this you, is insightful. I can't be uh, Senator Palpatine. That kind of double-headed kind of thing, which we see in neurosurgery, that the dark, duplicitous, duplicitous. Yes. and uh, literally, literally duplicitous. He's acting yes. as a double... Two different personalities, yes. right? That that we see a lot in neurosurgery, actually. Maybe a lot of the chairman out there. <laughs> oh dear, yeah. dear. Okay, we don't want to go there. Well, you know, it's funny because I was talking to um, one of my previous fellows recently, and he called me and said I need some advice, and he, you know, was kind of beating around the bush and said, you know, what do they do at Northwell, and what do you do in your? And I said, let's make it about you. What what questions do you have? And I actually said to him. You know, there's some politics to this. And he said, what? You're like the least political person in the world. You're so direct. You, and I said, yeah, I'm using the good politics with a, with a capital P or small P or whatever it is, which is building a consortium, building a group. So, you know, I, you know, I was talking to my kids and I said, if, I, if all three kids and me decide that we want to go someplace for dinner on vacation and then we tell mom, by the way, mom, we all want to go to this place for dinner. What do you want to do? She's going to say... Whatever you guys want. Well, you're married to a lovely woman, but she we know some people that would fight back. Maybe yeah. that. Maybe that's a bad example. But the fact of the matter is that what I'm seeing now is that the politics is usually a greasy word. And you know, you, in D.C., it's just so cutthroat. And in the hospital system, there is politics. But what I'm understanding is, you know, there's, a, there's an interest-based politics. What do you want, Mike? I bet 90% of it overlaps with what I want. What does JP want? Probably 90%. All of us that are in that Venn diagram, maybe 80 percent overlap. You got to get there. But if you come off and say, this is what I want to do, you're going to say, well, I'm not 100%. I'm born 100 So I'm learning this, and this is not natural for me. It's, the, it's tough. The difference between politics, as you say, with the lower P, and then the politicians, I mean, meerkats have politics, right? There you go. I mean, it's intrinsic. It's, it's, it's Societal, yeah. It's, it's in human interaction. But what you're saying is like the, the, the manipulation piece is, yes. is difficult. But I want to, I want to bring up a, a topic that you know, we see in the Wall Street Journal a lot, and, and I, I read the Wall Street Journal as much as I can. Um, the, the issue of are neurosurgeons going to survive, and I'll bring up this issue that Delta Airlines pilots just negotiated a 38% raise. Now, granted, they don't get raises often, but that's a pretty substantial different, differential Huge. in HR. Huge. Uh, I think, and, and I, I believe they deserve it, I think nurses in the post and during COVID era now make um, not multiples, but certainly substantially more than they used to make. And I think... They deserve it, but that's been the biggest hit to all hospital budgets. Correct. Yet we as doctors and surgeons as well um, are getting salary cuts every year. We just got one from Medicare. Correct. How do we survive? And and believe me, nobody's going to feel sorry for neurosurgeons not being able to pay their bills. But the reality is we do want the brightest and best. And we should be uh, compensated fairly for 
the kind of risk and training and, and certainly compared to professional athletes were grossly underpaid. Um, how do we survive all this? You know, it's a, it's a fascinating question because I, I, I completely agree with you on both sides. One, we're, I think we give great value and I think patients uh, are very thankful for what we do. Their life, their, their function can be saved or helped by us. On the other hand, as you said, Mike, we're not starving and people are going to say, you know, this is a greedy thing if you ask for more from, from you know, uh, a specialty that usually does well. And I'm just going to be very simple. And maybe this is coming from the business side of things. Um, you have to advocate for your value. And mm-hmm. so, for example, who hasn't heard that story about the banker versus the school teacher and says, you know, this school teacher inspired me. And this school teacher, you know, was the reason I am who I am today. And they get paid as a school teacher. And there's a banker who made uh, millions or whatever more, or a baseball player. The issue is that, and you know this, whether it's utility or supply demand mismatches, the market often decides that. And how much you advocate will be. So let me give you an example. If you can throw a ball 100 miles an hour, you're very rare. Hmm. So I don't know if a game is just a game. But if you are one of the few people who can throw a ball 100 miles an hour, you can make millions of dollars because the supply-demand mismatch is so high. Um, is it important that uh, someone cleans your, uh, your building and is a janitorial? Extremely valuable. But the reason is that that's uh, something that doesn't take much training, so you could hire someone tomorrow. You don't have to throw the ball 100 miles an hour. So I think as we go through this, we have to delicately show that we are doing things that are helping people to a large amount, um, while also not being greedy, and uh, but it has to be an advocate. In other words, no one's going to pay us more because we said we deserve it. It actually has to be a business model that makes sense. Okay, so as usual, I'm going to go out on a limb and completely scuttle myself and say this, and, and I know this is going to piss some people off, but I think it needs to be said. I'll give an example how what you're saying applies in real life and how people game the system. So Canada has almost no jobs for neurosurgeons. As you know, supply demand. Canadian neurosurgeons don't make less than Americans by much. If not, they They may even make more. Correct. Right? But they have more freaking residents and fellows per capita than anywhere. But their country has also limited the number of neurosurgeons. Yes. And they've also limited the number of neurosurgeries done. And where do they dump all their residents? Right, so we have fellows that multiple fellows. So I'm going to bring up an important question because you bring up supply demand. So every program out there is always asking itself, how do we get more residents? I'm sure Northwell is right now. How do we get four? How do we get five? Mm. It's a matter of pride, but it's also a matter of manpower and power for your graduate base, your alumni base, right? So are we training too many neurosurgeons and should we, I'm not, I will be, you know, sued if I say, like, don't bring Canadians. I'm not saying that because we know that there are neurosurgeons all over the world coming to America, trying to come to America from Mexico, China, Germany, because America is so amazing. But America is amazing partly because you said we've restricted the supply of neurosurgeons and ensured extremely high quality, right? We've ensured that all the vast majority of neurosurgeons can throw a ball at least 90, 90 miles an hour, some 100, a lot more than 95. We don't have any people pitching at 50 miles an hour. Right. I hope not. Well, we've seen like Dr. Death, which inspired this podcast. Mm. So that quality control and the restriction of numbers is what makes us so valuable. It's one of the features anyways, mm. right? They're intrinsic features to us. And Canada has gamed the system. And I know, you know, Jim Ruck is a good friend. You know, Michael Phelan's a friend. I, I know these people. And I'm not saying they designed it this way, but they benefit from it for sure to have 30 residents and not one job for any of them, maybe one. Right. 
Um, because we have fellows from Canada and they're going through this right now. They're trying to figure out how to get back to Canada and they're like, I need to stay in the U.S. now. You know, look, Canada's a civilized society. You know, they got a lot of good stuff going on, but there's an example of how that can be game. Now, America can't do that. We can't say we're going to have 55 residents a year at University of Miami so we can all stay at home and they're going to do all the work. We don't have to pay them much. And then they're all going to go out there and not find jobs. So are we, are we killing ourselves on every front? Are we just that dumb? We're not even as smart as the Delta pilots? Like, you know, it's a good question. Doing? One thing that comes to mind is a, is a blessing and a curse is that I think neurosurgery is pretty cool and I think most people do as well. So we have a captive base of people saying, wait, what do you do? That sounds awesome. Which is at risk, by the way. Which, Always at risk. Which is at risk. But what I'll tell you is that um, on many different markers, neurosurgeons, and I know we all get burned out at times, we all get tired and stuff. Neurosurgery is one of the lowest burnout specialties there is. Now, either it's because it's so fun and it's so amazing that we get better, or we're all a little sociopathic and we, you know, we don't, we just go through the day and oh, as things happen, I, I got, you know, maybe there's a little bit of, uh, you know, do we select or does it select us? But very low burnout rate. Now, neurology is at is at existential risk. Because are they primary care? Sometimes they talk about it as primary care. That's hard to fill primary care. Do they do procedures? Well, if they do, and they're interventionalists, they kind of hang out with neurosurgeons all day. Mm-hmm. If they're scientists, they hang out with the scientist people. If they do, and I just feel like that field is at risk. I think the neurosurgeons, whether we discover new ways to cure cancer, whether we discover new ways to go through the groin, do things, there is always gonna be a need for proceduralists in this world. We live in a physical world. We're not in the matrix yet. And even if we were in the matrix, you still got to figure out how to put those things. Yeah, in the how to connect, the to, head. connect right. to the brain. Yeah, and exactly. until the machine does that, functional is the future. So I think yeah. we're always. I think it's a blessing curse because I think we're always going to have people who want to do neurosurgery. It could be worse where we're sitting there going, "Guys, you've got to be like us." The question then becomes, though, is are we training too many? To your point, and what's happening is people want to be in Miami. They want to be in New York, and maybe there's. I mean, there's a lot of surgeons in New York, you know. And so the thing is, but are there enough surgeons in, you know? Southern, uh, Southern Kentucky or Western Ohio or you know, El Paso, Texas. And so we have to be thoughtful about how we supply the true demand out there. Yeah, you know, I, I, I always call myself out when we do these shows as the resident in the room. And so I, I feel both personally for myself because I have questions I like to be answered, but also for a lot of our listeners that are still in training, I'm the guy that brings the low-level questions to the table. No, I I, I'm the guy who has you pinned down and I go, wow, I can ask Dan Shuba about XYZ that is 20 years behind you, but I think valuable for me and, and for the, the trainees listening. And I am just caught up in this cultural aspect of what we were talking about with the business world versus the academic surgical world where as you said, the business people are so transparent and you say advocate for your value, but many, many people in training, I'm very blessed where I'm training and the people at your programs have you as their leadership. So you're someone that someone could be transparent and direct with. Dr. Wang is someone that you could be transparent and direct with, but there is this large swath of the culture within academic medicine and academic surgery. And, and of course, within neurosurgery of the old school, you know, the, the old guard and that pressure on residents, just keep your head down, just get through the day. And exactly as you described, just, I hope my boss knows I work hard. I hope my boss knows that I'm, I'm just going to keep my head down and do the work and they'll recognize me and I won't speak up for myself. And that, that is still in many places and for many people kind of baked into the psyche or the personality of the, 
stereotypical neurosurgery resident, especially in the junior years. Just keep your head down and hopefully they'll acknowledge you're working hard. So again, you two are people that someone can talk to and you're, you're going out on our show and saying, just be transparent, talk to me. But perhaps if you could try to cast your mind back and, and put yourself in the position of someone who is in a more old school place or feels that internally, how do you walk that fine line with the, the bigger little P politics where you want to be transparent and you want to advocate for yourself, but you don't want to feel the hammer, right? I think, I think you nailed it. There's a, there's a sweet spot. There's kind yeah. of threading the needle here because, you know, I was watching Chris Rock's new special. And and I, have no, <laughs> I have no link to Netflix or anything, unfortunately. But, you know, I was watching it and he said, you know, there's, there's, the, um, there's the narcotics that, you know, that we're addicted to, painkillers, we're addicted to certain drugs. We're di- and he said, you know, we're addicted to, we're addicted to attention. Mm. So I told this to my kids and they were like, dad, are you trying to make a point about, you know, we're on, we're on social media too much or what have you. So you got to be careful that you don't every day say to your bosses, look what I did today. Like, you know, if you have a firstborn child, that's usually the, you know, look at me, daddy, look at me, daddy. And you're like, got it. Resident number five. Like, you know, here's your, here's your little treat, you know, here's your, here's your little treat, like a little dog, you know, like it's like, so you don't want to be too much. On the other hand, you're also in a PGY seven and you're like, um, I don't know where to look for jobs. So the simplest thing that I can tell maybe the listeners today that I've noticed over the years is that it does, it does you service to go to people for certain things and to understand that. And if it's for a job, that's not necessarily the same as it is for a research mentor or a surgical mentor. Let me make it very clear. Some people are triple threats. Mike Wang is like a quadruple threat, does everything well. But the fact of the matter is, some people that you're gonna see in residency are like, I want to operate like that person because they just inspire me. They're very, very technically sound. Mm. But maybe they don't have other things that, you know, you'd go, I want to be like this person at the bedside because they just, everyone loves them. They're like the most magnanimous stuff. And there's another one, this is the best thinker, the research I want to know. And then there's someone, maybe one of those, maybe different, who gets people jobs. And I don't think we tell everyone. So at Hopkins and at Northwell, there are certain people who pick up phones and call other people across the country and say, Someone wants to do a fellowship with you, Mike. What do you think? In two years, Mike says, this is what I'm thinking. I don't know if I have room, but let's work on it. And the person has a fellowship. Funny how that happened. That resident might have not done much, but except partnered with me and said, I want to be with Mike in two years. Um, But if they called someone else in my department, they'd say, I don't know. I heard that's a competitive fellowship. And I don't know, Mike, but good luck when you write him an email. So I think that sometimes we have to remember that the people that you say, I want to be like so-and-so, actually may not have any desire to call people for you and that's okay not to hold it against them and so walking that fine line is keep it yes keep your head down yes do a good job yes don't necessarily advertise every little thing that you do well every day but on the other hand you have to let someone that you think has some cred how's that cred for getting people jobs and said listen i'm thinking i want a job in a competitive place like southern california oh, we should start talking now. You're graduating in four years. That's extremely competitive. Let me make some phone calls. Now, you might have to work at this hospital as opposed to, you know, and I'm getting, the, I get those every week, which is a CV saying, I'm finishing in a few months. Do you have a job for me? And I sit there and go, oh, dear. I wish this person <laughs> oh, dear. had someone at their place. You have four more years? <laughs> that told them yeah, that this right. is not necessarily the time, three months before they graduate, to ask Dan Shu, but if there's a spot because... I'm looking at hiring people, you know, two years out now sometimes, right? Like I'm thinking already. And so, um, and that, that everybody knows that. So back to your comment, it's start thinking about who 
helps people get jobs, mm. just like you think, who does the best basic science research? It's the same thing. But we don't like to talk about that part. We assume at the end of it that after grade six, we go to grade seven, and after grade seven in residency, we get job. It's actually a totally different thing. You actually have to start talking about what do you want, your family, where you want to be, and there's trade-offs. And the other trade-off is, you know, I always that, that famous line, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. Mm. So when people will say, I want to be in this city, and I want to make this much money, and I want to live in this place, I go, do you also have this skill? Because they need this there. Well, no, I want to do this. I want to be an... I want to be a left nostril anterior endoscopic skull-based surgeon <laughs> on, you know, women between these ages. I'm like, okay, so you're going to, you don't care about how much money you make because that's like one surgery in right. five years. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, when people say, I want to be like you, Dan, and do spine and that, and I say, one of the first things you're going to talk about in this job application is how you can take call, complex <laughs> spine call, because that's always needed. Right. And you have this ability to do that. Now, and the same thing with the endovascular people. They can, they can take stro- clots out, thrombectomies. Well, I want to do AVMs. That's my interest. I want to coil AVMs, and I want to have this new classification system. Can you take clot out of a head in yeah. the middle of the night? <laughs> sure, sure. There's something called incidence and prevalence. So. Yes. So, so, but you need, but I don't think we necessarily have it because you go to, you know, you hang out with Mike, and you love operating with him. You hang out with a skull-based person, and you realize that the market is right now, it is orders of magnitude more spine and endovascular than skull-based cases. Now that's bread and butter neurosurgery skull-based. But if you wanna be a complex skull-based person in Manhattan, it's gonna be very hard to only have that as a practice. Mm. You're probably gonna to have to be a brain tumor person and do shunts and do call and do subdurals and over time, maybe do that. If you want the skull-based practice that you inherit from some guy in the middle of the country who's gonna hand deliver it to you, that's awesome. But you might be in an area that is not uh, uh, location. So it's just about trade-offs. And I think trade-offs was the nature of business school, uh, Mike, to bring it back to full term. This trade-off about what's fungible. What is valuable to me? Well, I can give you six of these and three of these. Are you happy? Yeah, I'll yeah. take three of those. So what do I need to give you? Well, I need to give you some support. I need to give you some financial support. I need to give you mentorship. I need to give you a good environment to work in. And sometimes you skimp on one knowing that you have more in the other, right? You know, it's interesting, and, 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 you know, there's a lot of it comes back to quantification, right? The ability to quantify principles and measure in your head value, if you will, right? But I, I in, we, we have to wrap this up because we could talk for days, right, with you, because I'm learning so much just in this interaction. I, it strikes me that you are a person who has undergone an absolutely phenomenally rapid transformation. I mean, you were known for years at Johns Hopkins, decades, as an eminent clinician, master surgeon, educator, researcher. Your role today in just a couple of years is markedly different. I want to ask you about what I think is the hardest part. I think it's, I don't know actually, but I'm guessing is one of the hardest parts of what you, you are probably kind of involved in. If you're not overseeing, then you might be doing it yourself. And it inspired this podcast, by the way. So you, you know this podcast was inspired by Dr. Death uh, Chris Dunch, and, and, and we've debated whether or not, you know, we should talk about that more. But, but it, it was a need to, to say to the world that, look, we're, we're not that, for sure. But we're also not this other thing you think we might be, right? And I'm not suggesting that we're the idealized neurosurgeon. I'm just saying that we're get, getting different facets of what we do. Now, let me bring up the facet I want to talk about that you probably have to do now, I'm guessing. How do you deal with the problematic surgeon? I'm not talking about, like, necessarily, you know, 
the HR, like the surgeon through a scalpel kind of thing. That's a problem in itself. But how do you deal with the fact that people are going to have to receive information or action that they don't want to receive? Because that's where the emotional, social fabric gets torn, right? Absolutely. I mean, how do you do it? Like, like I'm not asking the, the mechanics. Like, how do you so, approach it? How do so you deal with it yourself? The, the first comment that's, a, you know, kind of a, in, in the question is, this is extremely uncomfortable and painful, right? Mm-hmm. To do your, that this is something where someone may have, I mean, think about it. They had to do well in high school. They had to do well in college. They had to get in med school. They had res- and then you're like, listen, it's not going to. It's not going to work out. Mm. Or they're even beyond that. They're a faculty and you're going, it's not, you know, this is not ideal for, and so it's, and, and then, so not only is it uncomfortable uh, that you have to breach this, but then you have to make a plan. Hey, we can improve you or we can, but you have to do these certain milestones. And if there has to be a point where you have to break up, it's not necessarily going to be accepted because the stakes are so high, right? This is potentially someone's livelihood. So now it has to be under significant objective you know, just like anything, you have to show that there's an issue. You have to alert that person. You then have to put in a plan to say, we're going to rehab you, if you will, right? And then we have to do milestones. And if those aren't met, then it, that's the right way to do it. It's still uncomfortable. Um, but one thing that I was, I was going to say about, um, oh, about, uh, uh, oh, I just forgot my thought, but about how, how, how do we do this and how do we make it, oh, this is what I was going to say, is when I left Hopkins and, and joined Northwise, I was talking to a uh, one of the uh, guys that was like a senior vice president of, I mean, he was the guy involved with the physicians group and he's now the interim dean. So he was a, a good guy named Ted. And uh, I said, Ted, any advice? And he said, you know, the three most important things is being a chair. I said, he's going to say money, money, money. He's going to say something. <laughs> Fundraising. Like, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Three yeah. things, money, number two, fundraise. And I was like, I think I know what you're going. He goes, he goes, I'm going to go in reverse order. He goes, the most, Im- he goes, third most important is innovation. I said, what? What are you talking? He goes, you know, like you get a paper out there, you guys get a grant. That's cool. I said, what? That's why I'm in this field. All the innovations, all the glory, all this wonderful enlightenment that we do. He goes, yeah, that's good. I mean, it's top three. <laughs> and hopefully I'm not, hopefully I'm not misquoting Ted if you're listening to this podcast. Ted. And I won't say your last name just so I can, uh, you know, you can say it wasn't you. Um, the second one he goes, is being responsible financially. So, you know, this is a bit, you have to take care of your faculty. You have to take care of the nerd. There has to be enough coming in and going, mm. you can't be irresponsible. I go, okay, that was it. But that's it, those two. And I said, what's number one? He goes, safety is number one. Mm. And I said, wow. I'm thinking, wow, he's really being quite, you know, this is quite an in, in integrity. He's sticking to his guns. He said, and I'm sitting there going, why is he, you know, is, is you really, safety number one? He said, listen, he said, do you think Johns Hopkins with its, with its brand, with its, uh, you know, university brand with its hospital brand cares if you have another paper tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I go, I mean, I, I, what do you, I, I thought so. He says, yeah, do they care if you make, you know, 500 million or 501 million? Yeah, they do. He goes, but if they're on the cover of the Baltimore Sun, if they are on the New York Times, this place is gone, potentially. It will undo all the good that this place could do. So back to yours, you know, marginal benefit and marginal loss. Like, you know, it's, a, it's an asymmetric slope. People hate losing more than they like gaining, right? At that flat yeah, part. Lost this utility. Yeah. You have a different change in utility. So you say, you know, I say, Mike, you know, if, I, if you hang out with me tomorrow, I'll give you an extra 50 bucks. You're like, Dan, I'm busy. I don't have to. And I say, but if you don't hang with me, you've got to give me 50 bucks out of your pocket right now. And that bothers you more. So what he said is the loss of the brand, of the momentum of healthcare, of the healthcare system, of your department, and of your personal brand is based on safety. So to bring that full circle, that is my North Star. So when I'm sitting there going, 
oh, this is painful, and I'm trying to deal with either, you know, someone who's not getting it as a resident or someone who's not getting it as attending, and maybe we can get them back on track, or we can ask, maybe there's something going on in their life. Maybe they have something going on in their personal life that's, you know, you have to find this. But it's not coming from a place of punitive. You're not looking to hurt this person. You're looking to say, if this patient is not, next patient is not treated well, not only is it that patient, but the entire system can fall apart, which would destroy so much value for so many people. So it's incumbent upon each individual surgeon, each patient, that we have to take this very seriously. And of course, you said, how do I do it? I, I kind of fudged over that, but it's yet involved. Ask a lot of questions. Listen, maybe it's a simple solution. Maybe they were having something going on at home. That's easy. If it's more systemic, then you've got to think about bigger things. But use safety, which we all agree with, not only just for you and your patient, but for the entire system. Because once those systems go down, it's a waste of a whole momentum of a healthcare system. Wow. wow. You should charge for this. This is incredible. <laughs> I mean, it's so, again, we have to respect your time, and, and we could go all day with this. We've covered Star Wars, The Big Lebowski, Changing Jobs, MBA application. Uh, it is always such a pleasure and a privilege to talk with you. Um, I do want to get on the record, though. My one memory of Mike Wang's MBA was sitting in San Francisco last year at CNS, and we met up for a very quick lunch, wanted to do some podcasts, but you said, I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry, I got homework. I got to get back to my room. <laughs> he was studying and he had a homework assignment. If, if any of you listening can picture that. Um, but it is, uh, it's an exciting time for you finishing up that degree, Dr. Wang. And, and again, as we've talked with you, Dr. Shuba, kind of as he was starting, going through, and, and now finishing up the MBA journey, seeing where it can lead. And seeing, as we've been discussing, the, the transformations both in your day-to-day life, but the way you think about things and the way you approach the job that you found now. So as always, thank you for coming, giving us your time and speaking with us. Thank you, guys. Congratulations on a, another great year of podcasts. And thank you again. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.